0: everybody, and welcome to Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host for Radio Free Acton, and uh, today we have a special edition of the podcast. We're going to be talking about the Syrian crisis. Obviously, Syria has been embroiled in a civil war. We're going on five-plus years now. And anytime you have a conflict like that, there are going to be folks trying to escape it. And as such, we have a refugee crisis that has developed in and around Syria. People trying to escape the conflict. And there are a lot of people who are trying to help, but it's a huge challenge right now. We're going to talk with one of them today. Mark Ohanian is the director of programs for International Orthodox Christian Charities. He's currently in the United States doing a couple of events talking about the Syrian crisis. Uh, but he's usually on the ground over in that region, uh, working on it directly, and he will be talking with us about the crisis and the scale of the refugee problem that the uh, Orthodox Christian Charities and, frankly, all of the organizations that are working over there are dealing with, uh, and hopefully uh, providing us with some ways that we, in our own small way here from from home, can help. So without further ado, I'm going to pass the mic over to John Caritas, He is Director of Communications here at the Acton Institute, and he is... On the phone with Mark Ohanian from International Orthodox Christian Charities.
1: In March, Syria entered the fifth year of a civil war. This bloody conflict has resulted in the deaths of more than 220,000 Syrians and displaced more than 11 million people. The displaced include more than 7 million people in Syria itself and almost 4 million people to neighboring countries. They have left for Turkey. Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq in huge numbers. Many left loved ones behind and took only what they could carry. Fully one-third of refugees are now in substandard housing, and the U.N. Refugee Agency says the situation is deteriorating drastically. An estimated 600,000 refugee children are no longer attending school. As the weather warms, the humanitarian crisis is spilling into the Mediterranean. Many of these Syrian refugees and others from North Africa have made their way to ports in the eastern Mediterranean or Libya and taken to flimsy, overloaded boats and inflatable rafts. Since January, 15,000 people have crossed the Mediterranean by boat for the Greek islands, Italy, and other European shores. In the last week, about 1,100 migrants may have drowned in the Mediterranean based on initial estimates from officials. On Radio Free Acton today, we're talking with Mark Ohanian, Director of Programs for the International Orthodox Christian Charities, or IOCC, the Humanitarian Relief Agency of Orthodox Christian Churches in the United States. Mark is responsible for the overall management of IOCC's global emergency and development programs. For those in the West Michigan area, Mark will be in Grand Rapids on Sunday, May 17, for a benefit at St. Nicholas Antiochian Church to raise funds for this Syrian crisis. For more information, visit iocc.org forward slash Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids is one word. Mark, you're just back from Lebanon. The UN says that the flow of Syrian refugees into Lebanon would be comparable to the United States receiving a sudden influx of 88 million people. That must put tremendous strains on Lebanon and other host countries.
2: Correct, and that uh, almost represents about 25% uh, of the Lebanese population, uh, that is, the refugee population today, uh, which includes the majority Syrians and also some Palestinians who have been there since 1948. Uh, it does uh, put uh, Syrian refugees particularly between the rock and a hard place. From one side, uh, the demographic changes that this is imposing on Lebanon's delicate uh, sectarian structure Uh, They're competing with the jobs and access to health care and education in Lebanon. And on the other hand, the humanitarian obligations we have towards the Syrian refugees. It's a very delicate balance for us to make as IOCC in trying to meet their needs from one side, but also not to ignore the host population, the Lebanese population's needs, which which are also impoverished in those rural communities. To give you one example, uh, John, uh, some communities, some villages that are hosting uh, Syrian refugees the majority of that of the population in those communities are uh, students themselves right now for example if you take a village that has ten thousand or used to have ten thousand Lebanese today they're hosting in addition to the local population they're hosting an additional twenty or thirty thousand Syrians in those towns um... so you can imagine the strain that this puts on the infrastructure in those communities uh... the coping mechanism mm, becoming more and more difficult uh, for the Lebanese and for the Syrian refugees. Um, For example, the schools and the health clinics or the polyclinics in those spaces, they were not set up and they were not created uh, to deal with 30,000 population. They were set up to deal with uh, 10,000 population. So you can imagine the pressure that this puts on the schools, on the clinics and so forth, uh, which is why our programs right now in Lebanon Uh, We're focusing on the education. Uh, What that is is uh, rehabbing the schools, the public schools in those places, that are increasingly hosting uh, uh, Syrian refugees in addition to the uh, Lebanese population. In some schools, there are more Syrian students uh, than Lebanese students. Uh, So what we're trying to do is fix those schools uh, and also prepare the schools for multiple shifts. Sometimes they, they have two or three shifts. Uh, to deal with uh, the, the, the number of uh, children, Syrian children who are seeking education in Lebanon. The same uh, can be said for the healthcare healthcare clinics. Uh, we're also training uh, uh, the service providers there, but also improving their infrastructure.
1: Well, I can't imagine the strain this puts on the infrastructure that was there before. And we still see a continued stream of refugees coming in from Syria today, do we not?
2: That's correct. That wave has not stopped. It has been the case since early 2012. There's a a regular flow of refugees, not just to Lebanon, but to other countries. Of course, it goes through waves. Uh, Recently, the Lebanese government has created, has put some sort of uh, restrictions, a lot of restrictions, I would say, on the Lebanese, uh, on, on the Syrian refugees to come to Lebanon. It's becoming more and more difficult for the refugees to cross the border into Lebanon, and the same is true for Jordan as well. And what's happening, some of those refugees are just choosing to stay closer to the border on the Syrian side or going to other parts of uh, of Syria. And, uh, and that in itself, some are in safe locations, some are not in so uh, safe locations. But that's a situation that uh, some regional countries, Lebanon and Jordan included, uh, and Turkey included, have chosen to do that to limit uh, the access of uh, Syrians into the country. But nonetheless, there continues to be a flow of refugees, either formally or informally.
1: Talk a little bit about the living conditions that these refugees are in. I was reading a report, and I believe it was, I believe it was on the IOCC site, which talked about 400,000 Syrian refugees in the Lebanon's Bekaa Valley living in vinyl tents. And this is in the middle of winter. Uh, what's the situation now? What kind of housing do these refugees have in general?
2: It's, it's as you said. Uh, they're tents. They're uh, plastic sheeting, uh, and those who are lucky are actually in skeleton buildings, who are covered with plastic sheeting. They're a little bit more protected. But those who are in what uh, we call, or the Lebanese government uh, refers as tented settlement, they're not. They don't have official refugee status in Lebanon. Uh, they are bearing the brunt, especially during the past winter. Uh, the last two winters, in fact, they were one of the hard, hard, harshest winters in Lebanon and Syria. Um, so we had even cases of uh, children dying from the cold. Um, we, our staff, we're working on multiple fronts in those settlements. So one of the programs that we do is what we call WASH, Water and Sanitation and uh, Education and Hygiene. And that's uh, providing uh, access to water, drinking water, and also water for the showers and and the kitchens to use. Another activity that we do amongst many other activities is is, uh, we've established community kitchens. What that is is we have that going in uh, two places in Beka in north of Lebanon that provides hot meals to refugee and host populations. These are Syrian refugee women uh, partnering with local Lebanese women preparing hot meals Uh, for many of the refugees that also takes into account the dietary needs of the children and the refugee population. Uh, So this is one of our flagship programs that that we intend to expand in other parts of the country, especially where there are refugees.
1: So we're talking about the most basic human needs uh, to keep these refugees healthy so that uh, at some point we hope they can return home.
2: Yeah, uh, that prospect is... uh, Every day that passes, the prospect of the refugees returning home is becoming dimmer and dimmer. Uh, and I think, and then we know this from our work in other parts of the world with, that, 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 that had refugee cases, Bosnia as a case in point, Kosovo is a case in point. Um, every day that passes, it's less likely the refugees will return because what, what happens is they start integrating in those uh, host societies. Right. Their children start going to school. Uh-huh. Uh, the head of household starts getting the job and it becomes very difficult for them uh, after some years to return. And I think, unfortunately, that will be – that's very likely that that would be the case for the Syrian refugees as well, in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey and other places. Um, That's why I think our program – and you're right, our our assistance right now is really emergency assistance and some early recovery assistance. We're not even – Uh, or we haven't tackled yet the long-term needs of these refugees, such as job creation and for them to integrate in those societies, because as as you would appreciate, it's a sensitive matter for host governments to allow for these refugees uh, to to provide them the kind of support that would allow them to stay in those countries long-term, because what's happening is they're competing with the jobs. There's high rate of unemployment in Lebanon as it is. So you can imagine with a high number, very high number of refugees who are there, they're competing with local jobs. And that in itself is putting some strain um, on the local population. And in some cases, it's creating friction as well between uh, the the host population and the refugees. Uh,
1: I'd like to shift the focus a little bit now and talk about IOCC. You're one of the few relief agencies that are working inside Syria Uh, You're partnering with the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Antioch and all the East. And you also, as you do in other countries, uh, act as a partner with large international organizations like USAID and the UN. Do you also assist or act as a conduit for other church relief groups and NGOs trying to get aid into Syria? How does that work?
2: Yes, uh, we've been in uh, Syria since 2002, uh, so we've had long-term presence there. And as you mentioned, uh, John, our uh, strategic and key partner in Syria is the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Antioch, that's the Antiochian Orthodox Church uh, of Syria, uh, and our presence uh, with the, with the, with the church really spans or covers 11 governors out of the 14 governors in Syria, and that's a large territory, and that's where probably uh, the majority of the Syrian population of the 22 million uh, population, which is the number of Syrians in Syria before the conflict. Um, and, as, and then we have about 4 million as refugees, and that number is rising by the day. Uh, so, but we believe that those Syrians who are staying in Syria today, around 70 to 75% of them are in the areas that IOCC has access to in those 11 governorates. The three areas that we do not have access, unfortunately, is uh, Raska, Derizor, and Idlib provinces. Um, as far as our support, you're correct. Uh, we work with uh, a number of supporters, inter- especially international, ecumenical donors in Europe. Um, this is the it can be the Norwegian Church, uh, Danish Church, uh, from Holland and Sweden, and so forth, and so forth. Uh, that support our work in Syria and also in the region. We're part of an alliance called ACT Alliance. It's an alliance of ecumenical organizations, global ecumenical organizations from North America, Europe, Africa, Middle East, and all, all over the world. It's an alliance of 150 or so organizations. So many of those alliance members do support our operations in Syria, for which we're very grateful. But I think more importantly, I would say... Um, one of the key support for us is those are supporters in the United States. Without that support, we wouldn't be in a situation today to provide this kind of assistance uh, to, to, to the Syrians and the host population. So far, since the start of the crisis, we help around uh, 3 million people uh, in the region, mostly inside Syria. And a lot of that is thanks to our supporters in the United States.
1: Yeah, you know, I was uh, interested in uh, – IOCC has developed a cash-for-work program. And for example, last year, uh, displaced Syrian women were knitting sweaters for children, which they were used, which the program was basically set up so these women could earn some money. Um, Who pays them for the sweaters? And why is is it important for these women to gain some financial independence with their own labor? I imagine there's a lot of aid available, but they are choosing to work. That's correct, and I think that's part of our focus, uh, actually, this year,
2: uh, to focus on what we call early recovery activities, and this cash flow work falls under that, the early recovery. recovery. What we don't want to happen is the people who receive assistance from us uh, that we create a dependency on humanitarian aid that's probably the worst uh, we can do to them or it, 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 it will be a great disservice to the people we serve. We want them to help themselves and also do that with dignity. And this is why it's important for this kind of program, the Cash for Work program, uh, to support uh, those because uh, because they will generate their own income, because they will feel proud of producing something. They're not just giving, uh, receiving handouts. And we want we are We are very, very mindful not to create that uh, dependency because over the long term, it would damage those societies more than it would help. Um, Funding, though, for this kind of activity is hard to come for the cash for work and the early recovery because a lot of the donors at this point, they're they're giving preference to supporting emergency assistance, which we're doing a lot of that uh, 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 in Syria. But uh, we are trying to educate our donors as well that early recovery activities are a better way to do that, because because of this conflict is going to continue unfortunately there's no end in sight to this. we really need to focus on early recovery whenever and wherever possible. I should also say that we can 't always do or we, we cannot exclusively do early recovery simply because of the of, of the same issue that we addressed earlier there's, there, there, there is continued flow of refugees, continued flow of IDPs, that is internally displaced persons who flee from one conflict area to a relatively safer area inside Syria, and they do need the emergency response, the emergency assistance that we provide. Um, So yes, the early recovery, such as cash for work, such as shelter, such as uh, providing rent assistance to the refugees, uh, such as healthcare uh, support for the refugees is very critical to us, and we're really trying to educate our donors, that is, institutional donors, the U.N., the government donors, academic agencies, and our individual donors in the United States, that that is the best way for us to do.
1: Long term, that's where these refugees need to be focused then, many of them, that re-entry into exactly. the civil society where they can be um, supporting themselves.
2: Exactly, exactly, because you know we have to also think that the humanitarian assistance will not continue forever. Uh, and right. uh, And this is something that uh, We're competing with the dollars, the refugees and the IDPs and the affected populations are competing with the dollars of the humanitarian needs in places like Yemen today, for instance, and uh, and in other uh, countries, in Africa, in the Central African Republic and so forth. Uh, And if there's a major emergency one day, natural disaster and such, these monies will be diverted from Syria to other places. And I think we we need to be very mindful of that and really start investing in this early recovery, like livelihood, what we also call livelihood-type programming, uh, job
1: creation programming. Let me wrap up now. Uh, Could you talk about what your greatest concern is for the Syrian refugees today?
2: Syrians today, whether they're refugees or displaced or affected population, uh, they're all suffering from the same thing. I think one of the greatest things is this limbo that they are living uh, and the continued conflict that, that no one seems to care about that at this point. And there, at least there doesn't seem to be any genuine effort to try to put an end to this crisis, and I think that's probably the most important thing we can do. Now we as a humanitarian organization, as IUC, this is the job of countries and politicians to do and be a little, a little more proactive about this. Uh, there's a sense of this conflict is going uh, now into uh, fifth year. It's largely unchecked, uh, and and the flow of, or, or the needs that are arising by the day, and, and we haven't touched this issue, but uh, you may have heard of the cases where the recent flow of IDPs from Idlib uh, that came under attack yes, uh, yeah. uh, from ISIS and similar extremist groups, or from Aleppo just about uh, a week ago, that uh, certain neighborhoods uh, were, were shelled, heavy, heavily shelled. I mean, those are creating, again, waves and waves of IDPs. Hundreds of families are, are fleeing. So we need to continue to, uh, to, to, to provide assistance to them, but I think there needs to be a genuine effort by the countries, especially by international powers, the United States, the Europeans, and, and so forth, to really put uh, some sort of uh, a peace plan in this, at least a conversation with the, wearing, with the warring factions.
1: You read reports and people say things like, well, there's no political so- solution in sight right now, like people are throwing up their hands, you know, like there's nothing we can do.
2: Well, there is, uh, but the question is, 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 does that serve their geopolitical interests? And that's a question that the politicians will have to answer. Uh, Yeah, of course there is a political uh, solution. There always is a political solution. But what kind of compromises are those countries able to make or willing to make? That's the key question, I think, at this point. Uh, And the regional powers have really, uh, have left it, and they continue to let the conflict go on some of them are directly or indirectly fueling it uh, and uh, and we we stand uh, watching all this and creating this uh, this this uh, unimaginable uh, needs humanitarian needs that frankly we at iocc and all the un agencies and the other organizations responding um, we're not going to be we're, we're unable to meet all of these needs this is where i think uh, it becomes uh, important and imperative for these countries to step up. And, and it's not good enough to say there isn't a political solution. There is a political solution. It, the question is what kind of compromises we're willing to make. Because at the end of the day, the Syrian people do not deserve this. Not just the Syrian. The same can be is it, true for the Iraqi people, for the Lebanese and the it, it is It is... There's no justification for the millions and millions of people who are in need today uh, for, 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 for this conflict to go unchecked and unattended.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those situations where you, you struggle to find the words to capture the, the extent of the suffering and the, and the futility going on right now. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Our prayers go with you. Thank you, John. I appreciate this opportunity,
0: and I look forward to seeing you in Grand Rapids. And that was Mark Ohanian of the International Orthodox Christian Charities. His organization working very hard right now to alleviate the suffering of Syrian refugees. Uh, John mentioned an event coming up here in Grand Rapids, Michigan at St. Nicholas Antiochian Church uh, that will be uh, featuring Mark Ohanian. He will be speaking there about the Syrian refugee crisis and the conflict that's causing it. Sunday, May 17th. Uh, If you need more information on that, where it's located, how to get there, iocc.org slash Grand Rapids, Uh, Grand Rapids, all one word, no space in between as would normally occur. Also, if you are not able to make it to that event, if you're not local in the Grand Rapids area or already have plans, there are other ways you can help. One of the ways that you can help is just to head over to IOCC.org, hit the Donate Now button and uh, donate to the work that IOCC is doing right now in the region Uh, of Syria and its surrounding areas. There's a Donate Now button right on the homepage, and you can designate your gift to go towards the Syrian refugee crisis. So the links, one more time, iocc.org slash Grand Rapids. That's where you go if you want to see information about the May 17th event. And iocc.org is where you go if you just want to hit the Donate Now button and help out. Thanks once again to Mark Ohanian for taking the time uh, for this interview. Important information there, and uh, uh, thank you uh, to Mark, who is doing uh, just great work with IOCC. Thank you to John Caritas for taking the time to handle the interviewing duties today. And of course, thank you to you for listening to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. We will be back in coming weeks with more editions of Radio Free Actin, So stay tuned and we will see you next time on Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody.